Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Chelsea James. Chelsea covers the Nationals for the Washington Post. You can give her a follow on Twitter at Chelsea underscore Janes. Chelsea, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Chelsea, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. I think it was mostly just my dad, and he was a big Yankees fan when I was young. Um, and when I was like six, he kind of popped me down in front of the World Series and um, made me watch them win it. Uh, and I didn't really know what that meant or how long it had been or why he was so happy about it. But I think over the years, I came to sort of get into it. And I think by 99, 2000, I was obsessed and could tell you everything about those teams. So um, just grew up watching it. I played, I played softball in high school and college and um, just kind of lucked into, you know, covering this team at a really kind of fun time to be around them. You're covering the Nationals now, obviously, and it's been an interesting time covering the Nationals over the last few years. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to start with this year, obviously. The Nationals were expected to run away with the division, and they're still in contention with the division. They're three games back, I believe. They have the highest playoff probability of anyone in the division, but they've never really taken over and held that lead for an extended period of time. And their marquee player, up until last night... Bryce Harper has really been struggling. He hit three doubles last night. Maybe he's coming out of it. But what have you seen in Harper this season that's been different in years past? Early on, he was Bryce Harper. He waited it out. He would take his walks. You know, he wasn't trying to do too much, but was still doing a lot. And then, you know, people stopped pitching to him, as they always do. It never takes anyone very long. Um, and he got nervous and antsy I think you know I think he just got sick of seeing kind of jump pitches and started swinging at more of them than he should and um when that happened you know he started missing more pitches and then you start thinking and it becomes sort of an interesting well not interesting probably fairly painful uh spiral for him but you know I think they've sort of been able to calm him down maybe the last few weeks and say hey like you swing at your pitches you're going to be fine and we're seeing him walk more now the last few days so you know, I think for him, he's starting to sort of settle down again, but you sort of forget that a guy like that who's been so good for so long, um, you know, is human and has those moments of, you know, overthinking and stuff like that. And he certainly does in that. He's, you know, I think that's what you saw early on. Yeah. And his chase rate is way up. He is definitely swinging at balls out of the zone. And with the exception of his MVP year, where he was getting bonds comparisons and everybody else, this is kind of a pattern where... Harper is so good early in the season, pitchers don't pitch to him, and he doesn't want to walk. He seemingly wants to be swinging all the time. I think there was audio of him a few years ago saying to the ump or the catcher, I hate this, when he was being intentionally walked. He does chase a little bit, and I wonder if he just puts too much pressure on himself when he is in a little bit of a funk. I think he's just aware of what he can do when he swings at good pitches, and I think we all are. I think we've all seen it. You know, those comparisons feel absurd you know, when he's slumping, but when he's going well, you you see why the bond comparisons come in. You see why everyone hyped him as much as they did because that's, the talent is just so real. And, you know, I think it's hard for him to sit by and feel like his best years, he's going to spend jogging the first and not seeing a pitch. And I, he wants to combat that as much as he can. It's not easy, but I think you see it most when protection for him in the lineup isn't there. And earlier this year, a lot of injuries you know, made it so that Bryce had to be the guy. And when Bryce has to be the guy, everyone knows it and doesn't have to give him anything to hit. 
So it's it's sort of a vicious cycle, but I think that protection is materializing again and you're seeing the benefits, but he's definitely prone to trying too hard and, and reaching out of his zone. And you know, we, like you say, we've seen that in years past and I'm sure that'll be something that people evaluate as they decide, you know, how much money to give him and for how long. That's part of, I think, why this particular struggle is so enhanced in our mind is because this was honestly supposed to be the year of Bryce Harper. This free agency year, people have been talking about for three or four years, Harper was supposed to get a $400 million contract. Do you think all that's been playing in his mind, too? It'd be crazy to think it isn't. You know, I I think it it has to be. He really would never say that. So, you know, you don't want to sort of put words in his mouth or read into something that's not there. But there were times this year where he looked just agonized, to be honest. He just didn't look like he was having fun. And I think we're starting to see him come back out of it a little bit and, and more like Bryce, but it, it'd be crazy to think it wasn't weighing on him. And especially as the market changed, you know, he's aware, he, he follows baseball, he knows what's happening and he saw free agency this winter, like we all did. And, you know, he saw the Yankees make moves that maybe eliminated one landing spot or at least a player in the, in the Bryce Derby or whatever. So it, it, there's just so many like machinations kind of happening around him that affect his state that he has no control over. And so when the one thing that he can control isn't going well, I, I'm sure that has to weigh on him. But, um, you know, he'd never say that. And so I guess we can't say for sure. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, with him. We have to put things in perspective. He still has been 20 percent average above the plate when you factor in his on base percentage and his slugging percentage. He's not struggling that badly. He's just the expectations with him are always so high. But going on to someone who didn't have that many expectations coming into the season is 19-year-old Juan Soto. And Juan Soto has, quite frankly, hit like we thought Bryce Harper would this season. He has been completely dominant. What have you seen in him so far? He's special. You know, he's really, he really is. I think there were people within the Nats who told us that. And, you know, you, you hear them talk about the best hitter they've seen come out of the Dominican or something like that. And you say, okay, sure, sure. You know, this is your guy. You're hyping and then you see him in person, and you're like, wow, you know, this is this is something else. So he's just patient. He knows his own. And, I, I mean, I can almost count on one hand, literally, the number of times you've seen him swing at a bad pitch. And I've never seen him do it twice. And I think that's the main thing with him is it's the adjustment. It's, okay, if I'm not – if I make a bad decision and swing at a pitch I don't want to, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to recognize that they're going to try to exploit that during the at-bat, and I'm not going to give it to him. And I think, you know – you getting fewer fastballs than anybody. It's it's not like people haven't adjusted. I think people have. He's just also adjusted, and he's gonna slump. It's gonna happen. But he's just got this better, you know, this eye that is uh, uncommon at any age, especially at 19. And I think it's what's allowing him to have so much success as he sort of ascends at this crazy pace. Do you think the emergence of Soto would make it easier for the Nationals to let Harper go if it comes to that? I do. You know, I think. I think it's a scenario they've been planning for for a long time. You know, I think you see in Rose, their other top prospect in Soto, you know, they, they believe in those guys. They won't let them go for anybody. Um, you know, the Marlins want those guys, one of them for JT Real Muto, and they're not going to give it to them. And, you know, I, I think it's, they're standing firm because they outfield with those two, Michael A. Taylor, who's a gold glove center fielder, Ash Eaton, who's, you know, probably a 300 hitter right now when he gets his feet back under him. So the pieces are there. You know, I think they've sort of prepared for a, a post-Bryce world for a long time. 
I don't know that that makes it easier to let him go. You know, he's their guy. He, they brought him up through the system. But, you know, if he's going to cost them 30% of their payroll, 25% of the payroll, you know, I, I think that's something where they can say, you know what, we've got these guys for half that price, and we think they can, you know, give us enough. How's Soto's defense? It's interesting. Um, you know, I think he's got a lot of work to do out there. It's, it's funny because he's been a really nice reminder of, the fact that development does happen in the minor leagues, you know, that there are parts of the game that get rounded out at that level um, because, you know, he's not perfect. He's not polished. You know, he, he drifts back on fly balls, which is sort of something, you know, you can get worked out of you in college or high school, or whatever the case may be, but he's 19, you know, that he's risen so quickly that there's just never been time to really teach, I think. And um, so they're working on that before games and, and helping him track balls. But, you know, he's got all the ability to be good out there. And I think it's really interesting to see a guy come up before his game's been polished the way that most guys are. And you really see, like, hey, there is development that happens in those years. There's a reason that guys don't move as fast as he does. And his hitting has just been so, uh, you know, kind of out of this world that they're willing to let him learn at this level and maybe, you know, take the hits that come with that. One of the, or I guess the main Achilles heel of the Nationals team over the last few years, up until the trade deadline last year, was the bullpen. And then last year, they made three trades, and they really rebuilt their bullpen, and their bullpen got very good very fast. And this year, it's been good as well, and they just added Kelvin Herrera to go along with it. And I'm curious, just seeing the evolution of this bullpen, if you think Mike Rizzo's philosophy with constructing a bullpen has changed, and if you think his philosophy with reliever usage has changed at all either. I don't, you know, I think that he's always been a big proponent of the bullpen. I think he's just got guys there now that he can break down. You know, he's seen Ryan Madsen and Brandon Kinsler both hit the DL already. Um, it, it, he can't afford to have them pitch at the pace they pitched early. You know, I think early on the Nats were playing a lot of close games and everyone said, oh, it'll even out. And it just hasn't even out. And there's no sense that it's going to even out. They play close games for whatever reason. That's how this season has gone. And you can't pitch Ryan Metzen and Brandon Kinsler and Sean Doolittle, guys with extensive injury histories, every day. So I think he went out and he said, you know what, this is a, a closer in Kelvin Herrera who won't have to close for us but can if we need him and just takes the pressure off at least one of those guys a day. You know, ideally you're not going to ever really need to use all four during a regular season. You can use them to sell each other. So I think it's Rizzo being really aware of the injury history of the players he does have and also realizing that it has always been the bullpen that's gotten them, you know, in the past and, and been a problem. And, you know, the Heat, someone has to deal with that right at the deadline from a place of desperation. He wants to take care of that and then see what else he can find, you know, maybe to patch up some other spots. Yeah, from the outside looking in, that seemed like a great deal for Washington. They get Herrera for longer than perhaps they were expecting or some of their competitors. They make moves. They got uh, they made one of the big trades early. That was good, and they didn't give up any of their marquee prospects either. They get someone that will help them that they needed, and they didn't give up a ton. It seemed like a no-brainer right there. Absolutely. They, those guys might be big leaders someday, but they're not going to be big leaders tomorrow. I think that Soto and Robles and Carter Keboom and some of these other guys, um, all the pitching in the net system, they need all the pitching they can get. You know, they didn't touch those guys. And it, you look at it, and I think a lot of people have said, oh, you know, Rizzo kind of fleeced the Royals. But I don't think that's it at all. I think the Royals got a lot of guys that, you know, they're not trying to win now. They can project. You know, they can say, this guy might be really good in four years. And I think they can take the chance on that where the Nats, you know, don't have to hype those guys, don't have to even think about those guys. Because if they come in four years down the road, great. But, you know, they've got a, a wave of talent already ready. So 
it, I think it was a you know a good deal for both sides and um, just a really smart deal for the Nats to jump early. Max Scherzer is really turning out to be one of the great free agent signings ever. He's been so good with the Nationals, and this year he's gotten even better. How is he doing this? It's almost incomprehensible, honestly. You know, these contracts aren't supposed to go like this. You know, they're and and he is in year four. We're about halfway through, and he is better than he was in year one. And I I think a lot of it is just that he doesn't know how to stop. You know, he doesn't know how to sort of settle. I think in the back of his mind, there's sort of a sense that if I ever were to stop working, I'd just fall off the pitching cliff, which probably isn't true, but he's just, he's learned that he's had to work so hard over the years to become this pitcher. You know, he wasn't the elite, you know, top, top, top prospects coming out of anywhere. Um, you know, so I think when you, when you look at that, it's just his, not fear of not working, but just he doesn't know how to be a big leader without being obsessed. And I think, um, you know, that's served him well. And he's obsessed with his, you know, conditioning. He runs more than anyone I've ever seen. And it pays off. And, and he believes it'll pay off. And he's very aware of his body, too, which helps, you know, little nicks and bruises that he um, should pitch around, shouldn't pitch around. And, I, you know, he's just he's hyper aware of everything. And I think there are very few people that are, sort of as obsessed as Max Scherzer is with as many things in baseball as as Scherzer is. He's certainly put himself on a Hall of Fame trajectory. Is he aware of that? Do you think that's something that he thinks about at all? I think his answer to that would probably be something like, you know, that's not for me to decide. Um, But he's very aware. And, you know, you talk to him about who should be in the Hall of Fame of years past. He's just very aware of baseball history and, and why certain people are in, why they're not. But I don't, I've never heard him talk about it in his context. You know, I think he's just sort of control what I can control. But it's getting to that point. And I think, you know, if he's able to, you know, win a Cy Young this year and it looks like he's on track for that, you know, should he stay healthy, it's it's almost a no-brainer. And, and I think that he's it's starting to dawn on him that this is getting to be really special. But he's just he would never stop and think about that, you know, because what if the Braves hit him hard in his next start and would all, you know, it would be doomsday. So, um, you know, it's, it's just that kind of personality where it's like, yeah, I kind of see that, but what about the next start, you know? And that's just his unique brand of, of pitching. Yeah. Athletes can't really do that. It would be hilarious if he was just like, clearly I'm going to the hall of fame yeah. now. And then his next start, he gave up <laughs> eight runs to the Marlins. It just, it, no right. one, it wouldn't work out. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I want to get an update on Steven Strasburg. He's been injured for a while. How's he doing? I think he's doing well. He's been playing catch a little bit, um, which, to be honest, is sooner than I thought we'd see him. I thought this would be, you know, really shut him down for a long time and all this. But it hasn't been that long. Um, you know, I think the sense of him is there's no structural damage. It's weighed out the shoulder and let the inflammation get down. So all of that is good. And because it is Steven Strasburg, they're going to be incredibly careful. And they have been. So, you know, I think he's on track to probably return um, definitely after the All-Star break. I'm not sure how soon, but to be honest, I think the Nets plan for a, a Steven Strasburg disabled this stint a year. I think for maintenance, it's just how his body has operated. And so for it to come now and, you know, give him a break and hopefully get everything right, you know, for a stretch run that looks like it's going to matter, I think it'd be best case scenario for them, assuming everything, you know, continues to go as planned with him. Yeah, and I know Strasburg gets knocked sometimes for not being that guy that pitches 220 innings, but I think that's okay. When he pitches, he's very effective. He's not a guy that's going to go 
back-to-back seasons of that kind of innings, and that's okay. Shut him down, let him get his DL stint in. When he comes back and he comes back healthy, he's very good, and that makes a very potent one-two combo. And I think that combo right at the top of their rotation is part of the reason why their playoff odds are still remarkably high. I think so, too. And, you know, I think they could use another starter. I think, you know, one, one more injured, and they're a very different team. But when you see what Strasburg was able to do in the playoffs and, and what he does when he is right, uh, he's as dominant as anybody. You know, he ensures they are, are as dominant as it gets. So, you know, I think that's the duo that gives them, you know, some power heading into September and October and also heading into the next few years because they're both under contract and, you know, Strasburg isn't 30 yet and, and Scherzer doesn't show any signs of slowing down. So if you can pass the those guys in for a couple of years, you know, I'm not sure the window goes anywhere. I think it stays open because they're just that good. And, and you know, two out of five days, you have two of the best pitchers in baseball going. And, and that's a luxury that, you know, I think the Nats really appreciate and obviously invested a lot of money in. The Nationals did hire a new manager in the offseason. How do you see Martinez interacting differently with the players? And how do you think he's absorbing the information that the front office gives, um, statistical information? How do you think he handles that as well? Um, You know what? I think he is doing a really good job with the players. I think, you know, like a lot of the big names, you know, I know Bryce Harper is very happy with him and, and people love the intensity and kind of the, keep things light vibe. I know to people on the outside, sometimes that looks a little corny and, and you want, you know, get down to business or whatever. But I think for people that see the grind of the season, it, it, it really makes a big difference for the positive. Um, I don't, you know, I think that the, the big concern with him now is just sort of managing the bullpen and, you know, how he's going pitching. But I think that was always going to be the concern with every manager. That's the thing, right? You know, you brought in the wrong guy or you didn't bring in this guy. And that's sort of always the grumble. Um, and especially when you have a couple of relievers get hurt and, and, you know, a big workload, you're going to look at him and how he's doing it. But I think there was a lot there that he couldn't help. And I think there's a lot of, you know, stuff that we've seen him evolve in ready in that realm, just in terms of being careful with guys and stuff like that. So, you know, I think the main concern with him is going to be how he handles the pitching staff and you're seeing, seeing him make changes in that realm. But otherwise I think everyone responded really well to him and, um, you know, he's a, a positive figure in there and, and a source of energy for a team that, you know, has kind of gotten used to this and gotten into the routine and um, probably needs a little bit of life you know, coming in and, and sparking something. What are some of the changes you've seen with handling the pitching staff? You know, I think he's getting more aware of, of being careful with his relievers. I think he's going to try to stay away from that and then do little and guys like that down the stretch as much as he can. We're seeing him be a little more aware of, of that usage. And, and, you know, a guy like Sammy Solis, who's a lefty that people don't talk about a lot, he got worked really hard early. And then I think Martinez said, well, you know, we got we to gotta calm this down. Started using him for a batter at a time and then sort of spinning him out. So the ability to adapt is there, and I think it will continue to be there. But, um, you know, boys wonder, is it the right guy, right situation? And by giving him Kelvin Herrera, that's going to help make Martinez look pretty smart, too, because – it's going to be hard to go to the wrong guy in the latest. You know, they've got a lot of talent. So I think he's adjusting, you know, his awareness of their workflow and has also got some new weapons there that will really help him. Trey Turner is very quietly having a nice year. His defense has been very good this year. What has he done to improve his defense? I, you know, it's interesting. I don't think he's done anything in terms of overhauling his fundamentals. He's, he's sort of an interesting shortstop in that he, he's really a proponent of, like, a Jeter-esque jump throw. He uses it 
almost all the time. You know, if he's, if he's not in position, if he's not fielding a ball, you know, in front of him, he's jump throwing. And it's really interesting. And, you know, the Nats have timed it out. They've said, you know, it doesn't take that much longer. It's, it's not a problem. You can do this while you're young. But it's sort of, I think, skewed our understanding of him as a shortstop because it's, it's not typical. It looks different. It makes him look like he's doing something wrong. And really, I think it's good for him because it's taking the thought out of it. It's good for him to kind of let his athleticism play shortstop. And um, I think now that he's comfortable playing there every day, getting in the rhythm of it all, you're seeing what that athleticism can do. And, and you know, you knew the speed. You know the speed. And usually that translates to agility, and it has with him. And, and his range has improved. And I think it's just getting, you know, getting used to being out there and getting used to the pitchers and, and their tendencies. And he's a really smart guy. I think that plays into it, too, that, you know, he's not going to miss a detail. And, that, you know, every detail at shortstop helps you get an extra step here and there. And I think we've seen him take advantage of that. The Nationals, whether it's fair or not, have a reputation as being, I don't want to say chokers, but as, as a team that struggles in the playoffs. And they have not gone to the World Series, even though they've had loaded teams and, and some of the you know best teams on paper. I'm curious if you think that affects them. Do you think that they are more determined than ever, or do you think that it does kind of hang over them a little bit? It definitely hangs over them. Um, it's, it's there. And I think it's one of the reasons why you know we've seen them... Yeah, there's been a couple of years where, like you said much earlier, they're supposed to run away with this division, and, and it's been tough. And I think they're going to be in a race. And the last time that happened was 2015, and they didn't make the playoffs. And, you know, 2013, I think Davey Johnson said, World Series are best, and they didn't make the playoffs. And I think that what you see when they get into a tough regular season is is sort of the fear of not even giving them themselves the chance to get over that, that first-round hump. It's like all their season – funnels to that first round and when they are struggling to even get there I think it really weighs on them it's like oh my gosh you know we're not even going to give ourselves a chance to choke again you know um and obviously they think of it in terms but I, I think it's a huge weight and so in a season like this when you know you're going to have to fight just to get there I think there is a huge mental hurdle there you know I think it's like man like if we can't even get there you know what, what does that look like for us and um, so it's real. It's definitely real. And then when they get there, it just seems like they can play their best series or, you know, have things go their way. And it just never works out. So they played two of the most absurd game fives I've, I've, I, anyone has ever seen the last two years um, and somehow lost them. And I don't think anyone knows how they lost them when you go in the clubhouse afterward. It's like, what just happened? And, and that's sort of how this has always been. And I think until they win, until, you know, they sort of shed that, demon um they're not totally they can um and it's it's real and i think that's why getting past that first round would mean everything and honestly probably trigger a really deep run because it would just take such a weight off their shoulders that they'll never admit is there but you know you can feel it as soon as you talk to these guys for a few days the nationals are the host team for the all-star game the all-star weekend i guess do you know anything that they are planning or that the city of Washington is planning for the weekend? No, I don't. I, I mean, I know they kind of have all the basics, the fan fest and stuff, but I know one thing they really prioritize is keeping everything near the park, um, you know, near Nationals Park, which is an area that's really built up nicely over even the last five years. Um, and the advantage to that is they have the Metro, and that's, you know, on the same line as a lot of, you know, the convention center where the fan fest will be and, you know, all of that's within walking distance to sort of all the monuments and museums and stuff that people think about. So I think it's just going to be a really nice setting. Um, 
but I, I don't know of anything like above and beyond the norm, but I think that they're going to really do their best to keep it convenient and easy and, you know, hope that Bryce Harper puts on a show in home run derby, which is sort of their ace in, ace in their back pocket um, as long as he makes the all-star team, which it seems like he will. Yeah, he said he would participate this year as long as he makes it. Uh, I will say this, Nationals fans need to do a little better with some of the All-Star voting. If, you know, Trey Turner's lagging behind, <laughs> if they want to see some of their guys in their home park, they're going to have to turn out and vote a little bit better than they have been. Yeah, it's been it's interesting to see the voting because you, know, you see people say, well, I only vote for the best people, but there are a lot of teams where their fans are just voting willy-nilly, and I think you see the results of that, um, some of the Braves guys and stuff. So can't be mad if you don't see those guys in your home park, but... Um, yeah, the votes just haven't been there. And I mean, they probably don't deserve it. A lot of them they've had down years, but it is interesting to see that voting kind of fall off and, and see what that means for the Nats in their home park. Before I let you go on your Twitter bio, it says you were booed at Turner field. What's the story there? <laughs> yeah. I, so a foul ball came in the press box and like I played in college and I, there was a kid up, up, you know, instead of dropping the ball down, there was a kid up to my left who was like calling for the ball. And I was like, oh, I can make that throw thinking I could get it up to him and be nice and whatever. And I just, it was a terrible throw. I don't know what happened. I blacked out. It went wide and I just got booed because like people thought I was just trying to throw the ball by the kid, but that's not, I was actually trying to throw it at him, which I think reflects very poorly on my abilities. But yeah, I got booed and it was like one of the coolest moments of my life, I think, because I know a lot of people have gotten booed at Turner Field and I'm definitely the least of them, but I feel like it's a, an exclusive club. <laughs> You've been listening to Chelsea James. Chelsea covers the Nationals for the Washington Post. You can give her a follow on Twitter at Chelsea underscore James. Chelsea, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.